You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of some collections of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Inner Reading and Inner Hearing, and another set entitled How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. This is the last lecture in the section How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. These are lecture cycles. And then there's two more lectures in this book. This is Lecture 9, entitled The Separation of Art, Science, and Religion, given in Dornach on December 20th, 1914. With the different observations I recently set forth, I attempted less to communicate individual concepts and ideas as to characterize a particular manner of positioning oneself toward the world. For we must always keep in mind that the most important thing that will emerge from spiritual science is not conceptual or ideational, but rather the whole attitude or mood of the soul that human beings developing into the future, will be able to gain through spiritual science. Today, remnants of old mentalities and old soul moods adhere to all who come to anthroposophy. This is especially the case with a certain modern soul mood, which arose relatively recently, three, four, or five centuries ago, in the search for solutions to natural phenomena. This mood emerged from so-called scientific observation of the world and is regarded in most circles as the only valid one. But we know that scientific concepts and ideas have penetrated only a small part of humanity on earth, for modern education basically makes sure that the scientific mentality spreads out much more widely than science itself. And since this scientific type of soul mood has taken hold only recently, it is naturally difficult for the mood of the spiritual scientific worldview to establish itself in the midst of what has taken hold for only such a short time, and which must develop among the majority of people only as a transitional phase. The mood of the scientific worldview leads necessarily, bit by bit, into a kind of materialism, for it can indeed be nothing other than one-sided. It is gained in a one-sided way, through what we can call the head experiences of the human being, and it strives to exclude, where possible from its worldview, all concepts not in agreement with this human head mood. Everything that is not thought, cogitated, or obtained through experiment or observation with the help of thought or cognition. The mood of this worldview has also, one could say, maintained its one-sidedness in relation to human cognition, considering the impulses that have, to a great extent, moved into the human soul. Thus we can feel how difficult it will be to unfold through spiritual science a more comprehensive soul mood in relation to the world, one that derives from the whole human being. 
when today people who stand so properly in the scientific worldview pick up a book such as, for example, titled An Outline of Esoteric Science, they obviously see its content as a kind of nonsense of a burned-out brain, since they can gain no special resonances from it because of their one-sided brain and head-centered disposition. Now, there is something that reveals itself in a phenomenon, naturally in many, but especially strikingly in one phenomenon, that the spiritual scientific worldview sees in a radically opposite way than the natural scientific worldview. I want to emphasize this point first. When we study the human being from a spiritual scientific perspective, it becomes apparent as we go further back into primeval times, into, as we say, for instance, the moon development of our planetary existence, that precisely what appears significant to the human being of today, for the earthly development of the human being, really was not yet present in the ancient moon development. In the ancient moon development, what was in essence present, I say in essence, was what relates more or less exactly with the development of the modern human brain. And what the human being has outside the head, outside of what primarily belongs to the skull, to the head, the rest of his corporeality, in essence, is the product of the earth, a product of earthly organization. Once again, I I say in essence. We could also say it this way. When we follow human beings back to the ancient moon development, we gradually see, the further back we go, that the external limbs, by virtue of which we are today terrestrial human beings, crumple together, and what then remains is the head which has obviously been reshaped through the earth development, but which remains in its essentials as it was if one goes back to the moon development. The rest has organized itself around it, joined itself onto it. I explained all of this more precisely in the lectures I gave in 1911 on esoteric physiology, which I hope will appear in the Prague cycle. Therefore, in essence, we arrive at the knowledge that the human being began with what is present today, compressed and concentrated in its skull organization, and the rest has joined itself onto it. We must therefore say that, drawn schematically, we would have human beings in their moon development and in their earth development in such a way that the rest of their organization joins itself onto this. Compare what I have just said to the one-sided view that the natural scientific worldview has brought to things. It begins in a one-sided way, parenthesis, obviously all these things are based on something justifiable, close quote, excuse me, close parentheses, by saying that the human being has evolved upward from the lower animal levels to its present completeness. What then do we see in the lower animal levels? We see in them, in a stunted form, exactly what was developing for human beings as they arrived at the brain and head development. We see what the human head contains. In animals, the limbs, which have been added on, in the case of human beings, 
are particularly well-developed, and what was already particularly well-developed in human beings in the ancient moon development as the head, which then concentrated itself, is in animals still crumpled together, stunted. But that is all the natural scientific worldview sees. We can say the natural scientific worldview actually puts the cart before the horse, for it makes what has just joined itself under the human being into a point of departure. And what was with the human being before it had any such organs as the animals now have into something that is supposed to have itself developed out of these forms. Considered logically, this means nothing less than something like the following example. One first looks at a child, and then at the father, and finds that the father is taller than the child. One now assumes, as a consequence of logical deduction, that the taller, as it develops, could only have developed from the smaller, and not the other way around. That is the kind of conclusion science makes, in fact. The one-sidedness of the modern scientific way of thinking will one day make a grotesque impression on what will be humanity's new consciousness. One will know that the one-sidedly conceived Darwinian theory is logically nothing other than the assertion that the child gave birth to its father. Now you can conceive of what efforts will still be necessary before humanity relearns such things as they are now interpreted and relearns everything that goes with them in order really to relearn. Natural science has succeeded in founding a worldview that turns the world onto its head, and from now on the necessity will approach humanity to turn the world back on its legs. But only, excuse me, but over only three or four hundred years, humanity has gotten quite accustomed to looking at the topsy-turvy position as the correct one. Our duty is not to acquire mere theoretical concepts about this or that thing in the world, but rather to appropriate feelings and sensitivities for the duties that lie before us within the spiritual scientific movement. We must be clear how very different the consequences or results that come from the spiritual scientific concept of the world have to be from what surrounds us everywhere today. Otherwise, we will repeatedly fall into the mistake of not noticing the radical difference between the two views and of wanting to make careless, thoughtless compromises. We should be aware that we cannot graft things onto earlier worldviews, but that out of a completely new worldview, we should develop what can become more and more apparent as the right thing out of spiritual science. Only with this consciousness will we succeed in putting our soul into our task, and we must become accustomed to the fact that many questions that appear to be outside the circle of the spiritual scientific point of view can be grasped only when we enter into what spiritual science can call forth in our soul. Let us consider yet another thing which can be obvious for us in regard to the place where we now are standing where we have put up our building. I have emphasized on several earlier occasions how art, science, and religion are three branches of human spiritual life springing from one root. 
if we go back into the time of the primal mysteries, we find that they were arranged such that we cannot say they were art or religion or science. Rather, they were all those together. Science, religion, and art were a unity, organically bound to one another, in the ancient mysteries. What people now attempt to remind themselves with impotent concepts and ideas, human beings saw in the mysteries in a living representation, a living vision. They witnessed what today we can only think. We will not approach art in the future as we contemplate works of art today. In the future we will not approach a work of art by looking at it and then believing we can understand it first with thought. Rather we will experience it in direct vision, experiencing it in the soul. That, experiencing from within what was beheld, is how human beings initiated into the mysteries would grasp cognitively what was seen. What they grasped in knowledge in this way, understanding in viewing, cognitively viewing, was at the same time a beautiful object, appearing in forms and colors, speaking in sounds and words. It was art at the same time. Science and art were one. Today only art, separated from what science should give us, gives us an idea of how one is intimately unified with the object in direct external unification. And only those who want to drag into art the barbarity of symbolism, of making symbols, commit a sin against this directly experienced understanding of artwork. For the moment you begin to interpret a work of art, you leave what we can call the experiential understanding of works of art. It is fundamentally a barbarity to behave, let us say, toward Hamlet, in such a way that the individual characters are interpreted as the principles of the theosophical worldview or the like. May I never have the experience that a person interprets the individual forms of our buildings symbolically in this way, for direct understanding experience is what it is all about. So in the ancient mysteries, scientific or cognitive experience of the world was simultaneously an artistic experience of the world. And at the same time, this scientific and artistic experience of the world was also a religious feeling of the world. For what was experienced in directly living contemplation, in experiential understanding and understanding experience, was at the same time what people could revere, what they could raise their entire soul to with religious fervor. Religion, art, and science were one. Because of the hereditary human sin of weakness, to use the religious expression, it was necessary for the separation of science, art, and religion to emerge. What was originally one had to split, so that a religious current, an artistic current, and a scientific current arose. With the entire human soul grasped as an organism, all that was woven by scientific, religious, and artistic content had to be distributed among the individual powers of the soul. Science thus came to be given to human beings for the intellect, for thinking, so that when they experienced the world through thinking in science, their faculties of will and feeling could rest. Human beings became weak, 
they sought to experience the world scientifically, one-sidedly, in thinking. They also sought to experience the world artistically, in a one-sided way, so that the other powers of the soul could sleep, and also one-sidedly and for the same reason they sought to experience the world in religion. Human beings would not be able to construct what they can think through in such a completeness as they do today if they had not constructed a one-sided scientific current. They would not have been able to reach what has been achieved artistically if art had not separated itself. And religious fervor would not have reached the height it had to achieve if it had not separated itself from the soul forces devoted to science and art. But now, in regard to this separation, we have reached a crisis, and the crisis expresses itself very, very clearly. What is it about? Especially in recent decades, humanity has had increasingly to experience just how this crisis expresses itself. Science, art, and religion have separated themselves so widely that they cannot understand one another because they no longer have any mutual relations among themselves. Gradually we have come to see how religion, science and art broke off, quote, diplomatic relations, close quote. We see how such relations were still present in the heyday of the Italian Renaissance, when an intimate bond was still woven between religion and art in the creations of Raphael, Michelangelo and Leonardo. But the more we proceed into more recent times, the more we can see how a mutual lack of understanding has gradually formed between science, art and religion. We must unfortunately admit that we can see the extent to which, in recent decades, religion has become even hostile to art. We see how it has cast art out, how some religious currents attempt to reach the height of religious feeling by throwing out representational images and making churches as sober and empty of art as possible. We see further how another religious current has come to the point of still having artwork, but for the most part these are no longer truly works of art. For the artwork we still find in churches during the last decades, for the most part are not called on to awaken the artistic, aesthetic sense but rather to exterminate it utterly. And, on the other hand, we can see how art has increasingly shaken off its connection to the comprehension of divine spiritual existence, for everything has gone over to naturalism, and artists increasingly want to show only what can be exemplified in external nature. Obviously, if it wants only to be naturalistic, Art must break off its diplomatic relations with religion, for what religion must honor can have no model in external nature. And how little science has been able to maintain any of these relations we can trace in its slow approach to the breaking off of all relations. Yes, we see that slowly coming on. Leonardo da Vinci was an excellent artist of the 16th century who was active in the most varied fields as anatomist and technician. Whoever looks over his scientific works feels everywhere how they are permeated with an artistic sense. <clears throat> we see, however, how this 
sense has increasingly evaporated in modern times, how inartistic it has become, and how people today appear to believe that the greatest science consists particularly in being inartistic. It has become dogma, especially for a particular orientation of modern thought, that Goethe was such a dreadful physicist because artistic sense would not allow him to become a proper physicist. There has come to be a lack of understanding between the three currents. That, however, is the sign of a crisis. For when what had originally grown from one root has split apart so drastically in its mutual relations that the sap of life no longer comes from the common root, a crisis must come. The one-sided development of these currents must lead to a general withering away. In recent times we have brought the incomprehension of what is in fact a common organism, an interrelated organism in human nature, that has split itself up in its outer development entirely to a state of crisis. We are living in crises. We can define them by saying that human nature demands the organic unification of what had to go their separate ways for a time in the external world. Those who do not go through the development of the world in a dulled, sleeping state can perceive such a state of crisis in many fields of life today, and they can observe much in the causes of this crisis, which cannot remain the same as it is in its contemporary development. Such people will gain knowledge of what has to happen in order to overcome the crisis. We have indicated a crisis in the lapse of mutual understanding of science, art and religion. Another crisis is going through the world, noticed by few, but terrible in its effect. A crisis derived from the lack of understanding between two currents. One of these was was once whispered through the world in infinitely deep sayings that were engraved into the human heart, My kingdom is not of this world, and You are from beneath, I am from above. In other words, the root of the human being is in the spiritual world. The second current, which developed more and more into a dangerous opposition with what is expressed in the above words, is the saying, um, there's a a French phrase meaning I am the state, looks like l'état qu'est moi, sorry. My kingdom, the kingdom of my I, capital, is entirely bound to this world. The proper solution lies in the synthesis of the two sentences. In the universally conceived Christianity, expressed in the words, quote, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Close quote. In Christianity, when it is correctly understood, there is no false turning away from the world. Also absent in it is the one-sidedness that can live out its life in dependence on the material furnishings of worldly existence. When we express such things, We truly touch the deepest duties of anthroposophy, the deepest duties of us all. For anthroposophy, in the true sense of the word, must not arise one-sidedly from the head mood of a person, but rather from the entire soul of the human being. And then the soul will 
find the transition into anthroposophical life when it will be entirely seized by what spiritual science has given, not merely in its conceptual life, but wholly seized by it. It is a fact that what became the human head in the moon existence is, during the earth existence, on its way to becoming the entire human being. (laughs) During the ancient moon development, the ancestor of the present-day human being existed. What was at that time an external organism has become the head today, and the limbs have attached themselves to it. In the coming Jupiter development, the whole organism of the present-day human being will become the head. What you are today as a whole human being will be the brain, the head of the Jupiter human being, just as the whole moon human being has become the head of the earth human being. The task of true spiritual development is that the future really be anticipated. For that reason we must be conscious that there is a head culture all around us and that it behooves us to create a human culture. Our head could not think, could not, could reflect no ideas, no concepts, if it behaved like the rest of our organism. It could never really fulfill its duty then. Our head reflects the world, which is indeed becoming our world of perception, only because the head can forget itself in its perception, properly forget itself. In their capacity of feeling, human beings, thank God, are always without a head. If you attempt to sense yourself throughout, to feel yourself throughout, and ask yourself what you feel least in your organism, it is really the head that forgets itself most in normal life. And if for once it really does not forget itself, then it hurts. And we would much prefer that it not perceive anything, that we be left nicely in peace and kept without perception, Then the head brings our egotism into play. Otherwise it extinguishes itself. And because it extinguishes itself, we can perceive the whole world around us. It is organized to extinguish itself. Were you to forget the external periphery of the head a little less, but keep it in mind, then you would already no longer be able to perceive the external surroundings. Imagine that instead of perceiving the outside world, you could see your eye, E-Y-E, for example, or that you could take a step backward with your perception and see the cavity of the skull. But then there would be no perception of the outside world. In the same proportion and in the same moment that you succeed in turning off your entire organism, which you achieve through meditation and in initiation, In that same proportion and moment, your organism becomes a proper mirror of the world. Only you do not see the organism then, but rather the cosmos. Just as your head also does not see itself, but what is all around you, so the whole human being, when it becomes an organ of perception, sees the cosmos. That is the ideal that must float before us. To forget the organism as it appears to us on the physical plane, and thus to be able to use it as a reflective device with the secrets of the cosmos. In this way we expand our head understanding to an understanding based on the entire human being. And we must learn to trace, to sense, 
to feel somehow of how anthroposophy, the anthroposophical mood, must really take hold of the entire human being, overcoming this one-sided head mood that proceeds from modern science. If you take as factual what I said yesterday, when I described how we human beings can become conscious that we are illuminators for the cherubim and heaters for the seraphim, how we establish ourselves in thinking and willing in the world of the cherubim and seraphim, how we mean something for that world, how we are not here only for ourselves, but are rather in a lively relationship to the living and weaving of the spiritual hierarchies. If you make that into an attitude, you will trace something of how the whole human being, and not just the head, can properly become brain. How we as whole human beings can come into communication in this way with our environment. Then you will feel what is actually meant with this, to comprehend the world as a whole human being. When we once again comprehend the world as a whole human being, we cannot think one-sidedly, but with feeling and willing will also live ourselves into the entire earthly existence. We will live ourselves into the entire experience of the world. And the inner dependence on having things not only in thoughts but also in forms, not only in formless thoughts but also in beautiful expressive forms, will arise by itself. This drive, the need to express things in artistic forms, we now possess only intellectually. And once again, when human beings dive into the life of the whole spiritual world, their life becomes basically a prayer, and they no longer have any great need to separate out so nicely little moments for themselves in which they pray. Rather, they know, quote, when I think I am the illuminator of the cherubim, when I act, when I act in willing, I am a heater of the seraphim. Close quote. Human beings then know that they live inside the entire spiritual structure of the world. Thinking becomes a religious attitude for them. Action becomes a moral prayer. We see how these three prayers, art, religion and science, which had to walk separately for a while in the world, seek each other once again from within the entire human being. Human beings brought so much from their extraterrestrial development with them at the beginning of the earth development that they still had the living unified feeling, the unified striving that expressed itself in ancient times in the unification of art, religion and science. We could say that the angels were still striving within human beings. But human beings would have never become free if it had gone on like that. Human beings had to be emancipated from this ancient legacy. But we must find again in the upward course of our development what we lost in the downward course. We have often spoken of a beautiful saying of Goethe about architecture. He called architecture frozen music. Let us remain with this statement. We can really call architecture in its development up until now a kind of frozen music. The forms of architecture are like still melodies, like fixed harmonies and rhythms. But we have the duty 
since we are within the crisis alluded to, to bring what is frozen once again into movement, into liveliness, to a certain extent to make the stilled forms once again musically alive. If you see our building, you will notice its striving to bring the old motionless architectural forms into movement, to reshape them into life, to make them musical once again. That is why we don't have a round building, but rather one single symmetrical axis along which the motives move forward. So we see how what the spiritual scientific worldview intends also as art in its intimate relation with all the tasks, with all necessary impulses of our time, which we recognize in the crises of our time. To understand this, to see into it, is hugely necessary for our duty. We must gradually get a combined perspective of all particulars of our duty from this point of view. Human beings today forget early on to use their entire organism as a kind of brain. They have the predisposition. But hardly have they developed in the first years of life from a crawling child to a human being who walks erect before they unlearn how to have a relation to their entire organism just as they have to their brain throughout their entire life. This setting up of oneself, this bringing of oneself into the vertical is in fact a working of the spirit on the entire human being. It is the last remnant of what we bring along from the spiritual life before birth. In earthly life we rapidly forget it, and then we drag the entire organism which eats and drinks and digests as a burden through life. We drag it through life and no longer bring it into a respectable relation to the spiritual world, but rather carry it far away from the spiritual world. The child still has the great wisdom to direct itself according to the fact that the duty of human beings lies in heights far from the world, and in that their organism the direction is toward heights far from the world. When that stage is over, the organism, I don't want to be so impolite as the mystics of the Middle Ages who said that the organism was becoming a disgusting bag of maggots, but I will say that the organism is becoming a bag of digestion and maggots because cut off from its relation to the external world. Not even that relation to the exterior world of which I spoke yesterday will still be preserved. When we, for example, support our head in our hands in order to bring something important in the external organism to expression, we hardly pay attention to it. And when someone who has still kept slightly unconscious the habit of bringing the entire organism into use and not thinking only with the head lays the hand or the index finger on the forehead or the nose indicating thereby that he or she is now really making a distinction and a judgment, we do not notice that this is an instinctive striving to use the entire organism as a brain. It does not have to happen in this external way. Obviously, spiritual science does not think to make a fidget widget of the human being who thinks with his or her whole body, but consciousness 
must obviously expand itself spiritually to stand within the cosmos with the entire human being, to know that the cosmos can reflect itself through the entire body, just as now it is reflected only through the brain. When consciousness is expanded in this way, when human beings really get beyond dragging along their entire organism through life, when they learn to use it, to take it in hand, then what must be prepared in our time is prepared. A total, a totally human worldview instead of the mere cerebral worldview. This must become what anthroposophy strives for. Let us try it, and try in this way to raise into an attitude what otherwise remains a mere concept. Then we will reach what is intended with this spiritual scientific movement of ours. For as we rise up in development, when we live our way more and more into the whole human comprehension of the world, we will as human beings gradually find the true Christ figure. Only the cerebral world view is to blame that the Christ figure cannot be found. The moment the cerebral view is overcome when spiritual science will have become so strong that it reorganizes the consciousness of human beings in the ways I have characterized, what has already often been said about the view of Christ will truly come about. Then our human world will be able to reach what it can only reach by growing from within outward, and with this can lead itself over and away from much that has led straight to a crisis among the educated of the earth, not only in human beings' views of the world, but externally in reference to peoples and nations. We would wish that people, or at least a small part of humanity, gradually come to understand that help is really necessary. Then we will also understand that the help humanity needs can be achieved only from within souls, only from within outward, and that nothing else can be a surrogate, nothing else can help, but rather only the true and the genuine. And the true and the genuine must be one in the spirit by humankind. The end of lecture nine and the end of the little cycle called How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas.